Hello, and welcome to episode 169 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with David Rubenstein, principal of Thoughtful Action Consulting, former vice president for development at the Community Foundation for the National Capital Region, and the founding executive director of Best Shot Foundation, uh, which works with childhood pneumonia, the founding executive director of Save Darfur Coalition, and uh, David has also been the founding executive director of Environmentors Project. He is also the 2007 winner of Peace and Justice Award at the Center for African Peace and Conflict Resolution at UC Sacramento. David, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be with you. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, I'd like to think that quite a bit of what I've done has advanced the public interest, and I'm glad to talk to you about it in specifics that are interesting and useful to you. Uh, I would tell you that right now I'm doing consulting work with nonprofit organizations, helping them to make a bigger impact on the world, and I'm looking also at other ways to do that in this particularly fraught political environment where I think there's so much that's needed to be done to mobilize Americans who care about what happens in our future. So how is it that one would mobilize Americans who care about our future? Well, that's a a pretty grand question, and I think that if you could get the answer out of me or anybody else, then uh, it's your turn for a Nobel Prize. Well, what are you trying to do to advance that commission? The best way, I think, to do that is to be sure that people are aware of why they support who they support, whether Mm -hmm. they are uh, what I will call progressives or liberals, and understand what values underlie that. But I think even more important at this point is to understand the values and the principles that underlie people who are supporting President Trump. Uh, The most dangerous part about our current political environment, as I see it, is that we have gotten to a place where it is about personalities and about teams and about cultures rather than about one shared society and rather than paying careful attention to our most important and cherished values of fairness and freedom and taking care of what Christians might call the least of these. We have gotten away from that, I'm afraid. Our current political environment is about supporting your own team rather than about understanding what values are most important. I would go, in fact, even deeper than that to say that right now we have people protecting their cultures. And it's pretty normal for people to protect one's culture. That's wired into us, I think, in our our DNA. But I think people can also forget that what they're doing is supporting a grander culture and supporting the culture that is the United States, and at some level supporting a worldwide culture, believing that every human being has rights, every human being ought to be cared for, every human being ought to eat well, every human being ought to have health care of one sort or another. And I think we forget that when we worry about our particular cultures, when we think about protecting what we have, protecting our families, protecting our neighbors, we forget about the deeper values. And it seems to me that uh, as a politician, as a candidate, uh, now President Trump really played into those scarier parts of protecting our culture. And I believe that that is one of the reasons that 
folks were able to really ignore some pretty horrible things that he said and did and to forget about those while supporting their own candidate, the one who at some level, both literally and under using words that weren't quite so clear, said, I'm going to protect your culture and protect you. So we currently are situated in the Washington metropolitan area. As many people will know, those who supported the current president uh, live in mostly non-urban areas, um, in, in the more rural areas that define the majority of the geographic region of the United States. So do you travel to those areas or how is it that you're able to gain uh, understanding about what motivated his supporters to support him? Yeah, I, I need to be very clear that I'm not a, a scientist or a, a political scientist mm -hmm. or a journalist or a pundit in any of these things. Mm -hmm. But I would remind you that there are people who live very close to us, people who live, um, even though we're in the D.C. suburbs, people who join us in the D.C. suburbs who support, uh, supported President Trump's election. There were uh, signs in this neighborhood supporting uh, candidate Trump. And there are people throughout the Midwest and more urban areas who supported uh, the election of Hillary Clinton. So I wouldn't say that it's universal that there are places that are Trump places and places that are Hillary Clinton places. There are places throughout who have what you would go to. You would might say go to Arkansas or go to uh, Oklahoma and say, OK, this is Trump country. And in fact, place parts of rural Pennsylvania much more closely are or Trump places. But the reality is that, that folks who support supported Trump are all over and folks who support Hillary Clinton are all over as well. So let's transition into something that you said at the very beginning, which is you work to advance the mission of nonprofits. I know that you've been very engaged in fundraising. How is it that you came to such a place where the way that you are able to advance the missions of these nonprofits is through fundraising. How do you get into fundraising, and why is it why how do, why is this an important path for you? Why is it important to nonprofits to employ you to raise funds for these various different, um, I guess, uh, action issue ideas? That's a, a terrific question, and uh, there are many different parts to it, Jordan. So let me let me tease it out a little bit. Uh, the first question is what. It's obvious to me, but maybe not obvious to others who haven't worked in the nonprofit community, that nonprofit is a very, very broad term. It's uh, generally uh, meant to describe organizations that don't have shareholders but raise individual money. They don't sell things for the most part. They raise money by people who want to support their mission. Uh, you know, the most obvious one might be something like a soup kitchen that, that uh, is feeding people who don't have money to, to feed themselves. But it, it ranges all the way to studies of science and a, a group like the American Association to Advance Science. Uh, it ranges for things that are both uh, people who are doing advocacy, both to support or to oppose abortion would be nonprofit. So the idea of making the planet better is done by people at a day-to-day -day basis, but it's also done by organizations that are created in order to do these things. And because they don't typically sell products, they're relying on others to voluntarily give contributions to them. And that's one of my, my skills. It's not all, all of what I do, but it's a, a small part of what I do. But an important part is to help people identify the people who support the same mission and hold the same values that they have and are willing to put cash up 
to advance their mission through that particular nonprofit organization. So, well, I guess so there's many individuals around the nation who are contributing to these organizations. And I guess it's the idea that they would not have been aware of these organizations that they wanted to help support and identify with had it not been for your efforts to make them aware of this organization. Or I guess if there's these other individuals who want to give money and this organization that wants to receive money, why don't the people who want to give just give to the organizations who would like to receive? And I'm, and I'm, I'm supposing that it's because the organizations that want to receive are not on the radar of the people who want to give. Is that right? Well, in part... It's true that unless you know an organization exists, you're pretty unlikely to send money to the organization. But the reality is that even if you know the organization exists, you're also unlikely to send money to it. So I'll give you a, a pretty straightforward example. The Salvation Army. Um, everybody knows the Salvation Army because they have their characteristic red pods, people typically wearing Santa outfits, ringing bells outside of retail stores, uh, during the holiday season. So people know about Salvation Army, and I don't know what the numbers are. My guess is somewhere around 10% uh, of people who walk past them, maybe it's 5% who walk past them, throw a few coins or now a few bills into their pails. Mm -hmm. But that's because people understand what the Salvation Army is. They are in a Christmas mood. They are thinking about making the world a little bit better in the holiday season and they have some coins, and it's hard to look somebody in the eye and say, no, I don't want to help poor people. Although, uh, if we say the number is as big as 10%, as I suggested, then that's at least 9 out of 10 people who walk past and say, this is not important enough to me. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of parts to fundraising that go beyond just being aware of it. Uh, first of all, you want to be sure that the organization is explaining its story. How is it that uh, you may agree with me that the problem is bad, but you may not be motivated to help solve the problem. So I have to explain to you how your coins, how your dollars, how your million dollars will help be sure that it's effectively used to reach your own values. So first is to say, this is what we believe is going to make the world a better place. This is why we think we're going to be effective. And this is what we'll do with your cash to make the world a better place. These are the actions we're going to take, and these are the results we think we're going to get. But the most important part is breaking through, I think, a resistance that all humans have to giving away their money. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people who automatically give their money away and some people who automatically don't give their money away. And those folks are really not the most important audience for a nonprofit. The most important audience are people who are willing to help but are either tired of helping afraid that one organization is going to waste their money or even worse, steal their money, or think that one organization is the same as the other and I'll give next time. Mm -hmm. The role of a development professional is to explain how it is that we are going to be successful making sure that your values are achieved with your cash. Do you ever follow up with people who contributed in the past to let them know to what extent their contribution actually achieved what you had promised it would achieve? Yeah, I think that's a crucial part of, of any fundraising. And it's always surprising to me when the, the most uh, wealthy organizations forget to do that. Mm -hmm. But uh, everyone should be uh, thanking for a voluntary gift when the gift comes in. Mm -hmm. And everyone should be reporting back on what they've been able to accomplish, either with that specific contribution or more likely what they've accomplished as an organization with the pooled, the pooled contributions of lots of folks. Do you find generally that 
the promises that were made were kept? Well, it's big to say promises that were made were kept. Uh, my experience with most organizations is that they spend the money in goodwill according to their theory of change that they have put out. But virtually any nonprofit that I have seen, uh, in fact, I, I can't think of any that uh, don't go to this, haven't finished with their mission. That even something like polio, which is so close to being eradicated, hasn't been eradicated. Millions and millions and millions of dollars were devoted towards uh, eliminating polio. It's not done yet, uh, but you can't say that they haven't made um, immense, immense, immense contributions by getting rid of 99.9 something percent of polio around the world. So to say that it's been done, you can't say that to say that we have uh, educated people and we have vaccinated people is a wonderful step forward, you don't know which of your dollars saved which child. Uh, in most situations, it's impossible to know that. But you can know that that folks have made great, great strides and sure. that we're almost done curing polio. On the topic of polio, you'll find that Rotary International has made it their mission to end polio, to eliminate it as much as smallpox was eliminated earlier uh, in, a, in the late 20th century. But the argument is often, or is sometimes made, um, that those dollars could go further in reducing um, the prevalence of, of uh, childhood uh, diarrhea from cholera, which claims many lives and could be avoided with, with an easy um, oral rehydration kit for one and a half cents in Bangladesh, or you could address other diseases and begin really saving massive amounts of lives with small amounts of dollars um, and, and and not getting, but not fully eliminating that that uh, polio. So, to what extent? How would you speak to a donor and say, you know what, your dollar is better spent on trying to eliminate polio than taking the same dollar and saving tons and tons of lives on some with something else somewhere else? I think that's a, a, a wonderful philosophic question about charity and about philanthropy and about making change. And I you suggested that I would tell somebody that it's better to eliminate polio. And I would never say that to somebody. I believe that people have to make their own choices about the causes they support. I would be able to help a donor or a potential donor make a choice based on their own values. But I don't think that you could ever say that solving polio is better or worse than saving lives tomorrow from from uh, from diarrheal diseases, of which are the second largest cause of childhood death around the world. Say you were employed by Rotary International, right? And if your your job was to fundraise for that, yeah. then would you not need to make that argument? Right. If I were doing, if I were working for Rotary International or perhaps the Gates Foundation, mm -hmm. I would make the argument that uh, polio has caused millions and millions of deaths around the world over the years. And if we don't get rid of the last polio case, we will face that again in the future. So the idea being that we are close enough to preventing it from ever killing another child or ever, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, sentencing another child to paralysis for life, 
I would say that there is a great value in doing that. Now, on the other hand, there is the rise of terrorism around the world, especially since 9-11. It has really come into our consciousness. But even in the Revolutionary War in the 18th century, you might characterize some of the Founding Fathers' acts and their supporters' acts as terrorist acts. You saw it throughout the different world wars, throughout the Civil War. Throughout history, there have been acts of terrorism. But now, more than ever... Uh, individuals are empowered to have a huge impact with terrorism. And the idea of bioterrorism poses a great threat to many societies today. Um, and of course, there are stockpiles, uh, to some extent, uh, of, of uh, immunizations or of treatments for diseases that no longer exist, like, uh, or not in any big quantities, like bubonic plague or smallpox. Um, because it is possible, some governments think, that these diseases which have been eliminated from the earth could be reintroduced through biochemical warfare. So in that sense, if you were to eliminate polio from the face of the earth, it's still possible that you could have an epidemic in the future. Is that not the case? And is that worrisome to donors? Well, I'm, I need to say that I'm not an expert in either terrorism, nor am I an expert in polio. So I hate to describe that. But from a, a larger, once again, philosophic context, yeah. I, I can say that there's lots to worry about in this world. And that if we got every charitable person to care about every charitable issue uh, from now to, let's say, the end of the week, <laughs> we wouldn't make much of a difference. From now to the end of the year, we could make a difference in many areas. We could fully fund the arts, if that's what we chose to do. We could fully fund hunger programs and make sure that uh, there are sustainable solutions for people living in hunger. We could take on problems, medical problems. All of this takes a great deal of commitment from people that is not wired into human nature. Wired into human nature is the desire to help individuals we see in pain who are suffering. That is wired into us. But it is not wired into us automatically to help children we know nothing about on a continent far away. In fact, for many people, if you look at the, at the current political, once again, the current political environment, what's happening to children who live across the, the border from Texas in Mexico, that that's not an American problem. And we have problems at home we need to deal with first. Although, interestingly, technically, the term American is interesting just because it technically is an American problem since it is situated in North America. Right. right. Yeah. But uh, that's absolutely correct. And, and I, uh, that in my... May not be a United States American problem. Hey, I want to transition the conversation um, more towards you, David. Um, how is it that you learned that fundraising was a skill that you had? How did you realize that this niche in the economy was some a place where you could thrive? Well, there are three parts to that story. Uh, the first is when I was a youngster, probably 10 or 11 years old, uh, I went door to door, uh, volunteering, not volunteering to shine shoes, uh, offering to shine shoes. And uh, my marketing campaign was that I would shine shoes, the first shoe was free. And that if people wanted the second shoe shined, then they had to pay for, for, for the second shoe. How'd that work? Well, I was fairly successful <laughs> in the shoe shine industry. Uh, did not, never became a magnate of it, but uh, I was comfortable with, with what I was able to do. We also uh, had a, a, an organization or a company, I suppose, if you will, a partnership with uh, my friend Kenny Goldstein. We had Hedge and Edge. And uh, where we would cut people's lawns and trim their hedges. And we also had a, a little institute um, 
that was called You Need a Bagel, where we would uh, deliver bagels on Sunday morning in our uh, in our Jewish middle class neighborhood. We would go by bicycle to deliver warm bagels. Sounded like you were a young entrepreneur in the for profit area of the economy. Your whole life career has really been built in a nonprofit. So explain the transition there. That, that's a wonderful transition. But I will tell you, I need to take a stop off point there. Was when I was in college, and uh, I had lunch with a man named Milton Fine who at that time operated the Interstate Motor Lodges, which I think became Interstate Hotels, and uh, eventually sold his business for $2.1 billion at, at a time when $2.1 billion was a lot of money. But a few years before that, he, he gave me the advice that if I wanted to be successful in business, which is what I thought I wanted to be successful in business, that the most important skill I could develop would be in sales. Because in business, the most important thing you can do is to sell your ideas. And he, th he suggested to me advice, which I ended up taking, to start my, my career in sales, at a, com coming out of college, going into sales. And I, I ended up going into sales in a, a couple of telecommunications uh, places. The first was Southwestern Bell. The second was MCI Telecommunications, uh, where I was effectively uh, in sales. But... Uh, didn't find that quite interesting enough, and I ended up going into marketing, which I continue to find now many years later, marketing being much more interesting. But even at that point, uh, I had believed that I was going to be doing something much more interesting with my life and much more valuable. And I was uh, really committed to changing my life to doing something more useful and, and more so, so of, I would say of, more of social benefit. And I ended up through a, a long, much too long a story to, to tell, uh, working with a small group that was trying to create an environmental education program. Uh, and having read a Smithsonian magazine just before that meeting, I suggested an environmental mentoring program, which is in fact became the Environmentors Project. The others involved uh, didn't have the same enthusiasm for it that I had. But I created the uh, Environmentors Project and realized that the first thing I needed to do with the Environmentors Project was raise some money to pay myself a salary and to hire other people and pay them a salary. So that's the genesis of the fundraising. And my skill started out as a way to get the organization launched. Right. Okay. And that began a train of different nonprofits that you founded yourself. And then, uh, well, let's launch into that a little bit. Talk about what Environmentors did in a uh, best shot and, and saved Darfur, which really got a lot of attention. Um, but we'll talk about that later. So please, how did you, what, what was Env the Environmentors Project? Environmentors Project uh, still exists today, uh, more than 20 years after its founding. It's a program to put together high school students with environmental professionals. Uh, typically, when we started, the high school students came from under-resourced schools, uh, we started it in, in the D.C. public schools and moved it into uh, a few other schools and cities, mm -hmm. school districts and cities. Uh, the idea was to help students use the environment and science as a way to prepare themselves for getting into college and being more successful in college. Hmm. A mentorship program. Really want to delve into the segue, segue into the Save, Save Darfur Coalition. Um, clearly, in the 19... Well, you're... you're of Jewish heritage, the Holocaust in the 20th century clearly affected, uh, is in the consciousness of, of many people um, of, of all backgrounds. Um, 
in, in the 90s, we had uh, the Rwandan genocide. There are many in the, earlier in the 70s, we had um, Khmer Rouge. Um, and now uh, there, there was people have said that Darfur uh, is a place where genocide has taken place. So uh, what happened there, I suppose? How did you come to create that coalition and what was the effect of creating it? I want to uh, tip my hat to Nick Kristof, uh, the New York Times columnist who uh, made sure that America's attention and to a, a small degree others' attention really went to what was happening in Darfur. The first person to give it an international, uh, I, I guess if you would, uh, megaphone was the Secretary General of the United Nations who determined that it uh, established in 2004 that it was the world's worst humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. and uh, Nick Kristoff wrote about it quite a bit uh, an article of his caught my attention uh, I had a lunch having just returned from Guatemala mm -hmm. where I had uh, spent five months uh, doing volunteer work in Guatemala I returned with a commitment to helping others overseas I read Nick's work I had a conversation with somebody in a in a phil philanthropic advisory organization and through that uh, presented the idea to get some groups together to talk about what was happening in Darfur and that meeting launched, it was called a, a summit, uh, that summit launched the um, folks who were interested in getting engaged in taking on Darfur as an advocacy issue. And you had a diverse group, 184 players or so from the left, from the right, non-political, religious. Right. How did you build that? Because really, right now you have been a consult. you are a consultant for various nonprofit organizations. So clearly you developed quite a robust donor network. And I'm wondering, as you transition from one project to the next, you're taking your, your, your network and you're moving their attention, it sounds like, from one issue to the next. Um, and I guess you're building coalitions of people who care and, and who are able to donate. So with the Save the Darfur Coalition, I guess you're continuing to build up and, and build attention around this idea. And then, and then, they, and then you, and through those efforts, you're able to build trust. You're able to shift over to other projects. Is that Are you kind of like a, a, a guidepost for, for these donors who are seeking to, to have some more impact and, and meaning in their life? Is that what's going on here? Well, let me answer your last question first, yeah. uh, which is that uh, I hope that there are several people who trust my judgment and trust that I have knowledge of the political environment and of the charitable environment, philanthropic environment, uh, where they rely on my opinion to help understand ways to use their funds most effectively. But that's a pretty small part of who I am and what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, to start out with the Save Darfur Coalition, which is similar in some ways, but very different from most of the rest of the work that we've been describing. Uh, we started with, I think, some 30-odd uh, organizations at that summit held in New York, in New York City mm -hmm. who were brought together. Uh, some of the typical human rights and, and faith-based organizations mm -hmm. came together to learn what was happening at Darfur, then um, to sign up to a unity statement. There was, I think, some I don't remember the exact number, 30 or so signatories uh, at that f coming out of that first meeting. But in the two weeks uh, that it took us to get the unity statement put together, we solicited another 30 or so organizations. I think there were 65 organizations who originally signed it over the course of the next uh, two and a half years. 
I think we added another roughly 120 organizations mm -hmm. uh, to to be, become part of the coalition. And and so, what was the effect of that coalition? Well, I think the coalition was very powerful uh, for a couple of reasons. The one is that one that you mentioned earlier, uh, which is the uh, uniform response of the Jewish community mm -hmm. to say that they had suffered through uh, a Holocaust and that Jews of a certain age uh, who had grown up uh, after the Holocaust said, well, if I had been around, I wouldn't have let that happen or I would have stood up, I would have done more. Mm -hmm. You know, the world didn't do enough, I would have stood up. So that when they learned of the situation which was being described as a genocide, uh, they really stepped up. And I, I need to give credit to two very important organizations who brought the Jewish community in, uh, which was the American Jewish World Service and uh, the group called the Jewish Council for Public Affairs were very effective at getting the message out to their folks and to raising money to make sure that the, the program uh, could be effective. But that, that's two out of 182 members of the coalition. Sure. Lots of faith-based groups, uh, lots of human rights groups. Lots. Were you, were you involved? I guess the, the conflict continues, though, to this day. You have Sudan that was, was split into two different countries, but due to oil uh, pipelines and oil sources and various other uh, reasons, you, you continue to have violence in that region. Well, there's violence in that region and violence in Sudan and violence in South Sudan. Now, South Sudan is now a separate country, which it wasn't at the time. Mm -hmm. But the American public paid a great deal of attention to South Sudan in the early 2000s uh, when it was uh, learned that, that Christians in South Sudan were being abused by the government in Khartoum, the country of Sudan itself. And um, American Christians in particular paid a great deal of attention to that suffering. Uh, the American government sent a, uh, an envoy over there, George Bush, the president at the time, sent his envoy, who was uh, John Danforth, a former senator, who reached a peace agreement in South Sudan, which resulted uh, five or six years later in a vote to separate into separate countries. So South Sudan became a separate country. Now South Sudan is facing its own uh, violence, uh, once again, for control of oil that's in South Sudan. And is separate from a genocide? Is a genocide concluded? Well, I, I don't know that the term genocide was used to describe what's happening or what has happened in South Sudan. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't say that it has concluded, but it is because it had... Had been begun as a genocide, but there was a great deal of violence, uh, violence different ethnic groups in South Sudan. Uh, it started out that uh, the government in Sudan, the Khartoum-based government, uh, wanted to control the oil, and the people in the in South Sudan wanted to control their own oil, and started a rebellion there, which now has ended in a separate country, which still has violence in it. That's different from what happened in the west of the country, in the Darfur region of Sudan. So as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask a final question, which is for you to suppose that you're standing um, at some sort of summit uh, before many donors who, with whom you've been in contact over the last few decades. And these donors are, are assembled before you, and, and you're at the uh, dais up top in the front, and, and you're about to give them, uh, just speak to them for a minute or two. And uh, I'd like you to talk to these donors about why it is that you found it so important to get behind these causes? Why it's so important that they put their money where their mouth is? Um, 
what the the point is of all this advocacy and activism and ultimately what you hope both you and they will have achieved uh, throughout the course of their lives as a result of their efforts. That's a terrific opportunity for me to talk about my own philosophy of human nature and my philosophy of making the world a better place and how important that is. So I thank you for that opportunity. And before we run out of time, I want to thank you for including me in this and letting me speak to your listeners. But so assuming that I'm on a dais and that there are wealthy people who are listening to me, uh, I, I would speak to them from my heart to their hearts. And I would say that uh, if they believe that this world is the world they want to live in exactly the way it is, then there's no point in continuing to hear from me. But I believe that there are many, many, many ways to make this a better place. And everybody ought to be reaching into. My wish is that people will reach into their hearts and to know what would make them feel better about the world that they live in. And to recognize that everybody with a lot of money, without a lot of money, can make a difference to make this a better planet, which means that thinking of every human being as having a right to live and every human being should have less suffering and that we ought to be focusing on the ones who have the least and who are suffering the most and who are most vulnerable and that there are many, many ways to use the vast resources we have as a country. And I would say that most people listening to me, either from the dais on the summit or most people listening to your wonderful podcast, recognize that there's much more that they can do. They can do things by volunteering. They can do things by donating resources. They can do things by inspiring others. They can write letters to the editor. But everybody has an ability to make this a better planet. And when I say a better planet, I mean that the most vulnerable will be suffering less. So I would encourage them to look into their own hearts. I would encourage them to speak to people who can help them identify where their funds would do the most good for the causes that are most important to them, but to focus on the, the core values that they hold, that they say that these are the things, how I want my grandchildren to remember me and my grandchildren's grandchildren to remember me because I reduce suffering in this way or the other way. And that has been David Rubenstein, Principal at Thoughtful Action Consulting, former Vice President for Development at the Community Foundation for the National Capital Region. David has also been the founding executive director of three organizations, the Best Shot Foundation, Saved Our Four Coalition, and Environmentors Project. He speaks essentially about a compassionate utilitarianism where he seeks to alleviate suffering to assist the most vulnerable, and he connects individuals with opportunities for action that most closely align with those donors' personal philosophies and values. He emphasizes the, the importance of empathy, of looking into one's own heart, and he speaks of his philosophy of changing the world for the better, of taking action and uniting behind ideas, organizations, and working with other groups of people who are collectively uh, um, uh, coalescing their efforts to create a world in which they'd rather live. Uh, he speaks not so much of the world that, that is, but the world that he thinks could be. And that is how he galvanizes donors. David is one who seeks to advance the public interest by ensuring that, uh, well, he speaks about a basic human nature where we have a desire to help people who we see in pain. 
And uh, as he has learned from other mentors, the most important skill is to sell your own idea. Um, he helps other organizations sell those ideas. And for him, public service is enabling um, individuals to live in accordance with their own philosophies and values in order to, uh, in a sense, be aligned with his value, which is to, to make the world a better place um, and to help those who are in greatest need. So, David, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thank you. And this has been Episode 169 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And should you have any response to this episode, should you like to speak to David, should you like to offer a counterpoint to what was discussed today, please call Public Interest Podcast at 240-630-0380. And that message may be posted live on the Public Interest Podcast website. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.